Well, I have a surprise for you tonight that's probably not a surprise. Uh, we're not going to finish Revelation tonight. <laughs> I've been telling you now for, yeah, you kind of figured that out. Um, actually, I'm going to do something a little bit different tonight. I'm going to back up. I'm not going to do like I did one time I taught the book of James. I took a year to go through the book of James, and I got to the last chapter, and I said, I just don't think I've done justice to this book. So we started at the beginning. That was in my first church and did the whole thing. I'm not going to do that to you, but um, there are some things that I think really need to be covered, and uh, especially with some new folks that are coming, I think it's important that certain things are understood. So uh, if you would, open your Bibles to Revelation 21. Here we are toward the end of the book, but if you have your notes, and by the way, these notes... uh, Most of them were done way back uh, in that first church of mine back in Conway, Arkansas. But if you have your notes, if you would just look on the front page, it'll kind of introduce what I want to do this evening. At the bottom of the page there where it has suggestions for study and review, point one is really important. It says, knowledge of dispensations is absolutely imperative to understand the book of Revelation. Now, you might not even know what the term dispensations means. You may be well educated on it. Um, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tap into that a little bit tonight, and we're going to kind of get an overview of history. Basically, when we talk about dispensations, we're just talking about the various stages in the plan of God as it works out as we see it in the Old Testament history and, of course, uh, the early church and then... As we look at prophecy, uh, we're looking at what we call theologically eschatology or the study of last things. And of course, we have a lot of material to study last things with because while we have somewhere over 300, maybe around 330 prophecies of the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, one of the the first one, of course, being Genesis 3.15 at the very beginning of human history, the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And then, of course, the book of Job, uh, in Job 19, 25 through 27, where he talks about the fact that he knows his Redeemer will come, that he's going to stand on the earth, that even though Job is going to die, he had the assurance that he himself would be resurrected, and in his resurrected body he would see God. And in those couple of short verses, the amount of theology that is packed in to the statement that he made, and when you think that it was written 2,000 years before Christ came onto the scene, onto the face of the earth, is really just absolutely amazing. But what I want to do tonight is I want to go through the first few verses, maybe the first five verses in Revelation 21. And, you know, here we are talking about new heavens and a new earth. And it's wonderful to look forward to the eternal state. But I think it's extremely important for us to always keep ourselves grounded in the hope that we have right now. And that is, of course, the blessed hope of the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's really something that I want to focus on uh, as we look into it this evening. I said there are over 300 prophecies of the first coming of Christ. There are over 500 of His second coming. Many people 
are not able to distinguish, many pastors, tragically, are not able to distinguish between the prophecies that relate to his second coming and the prophecies that relate to his return for the church. Many people don't even know that there is a distinction between those two things. And so we're going to look at that uh, this evening. So if you will, uh, you can go ahead and and, uh, turn in your notes to page 77. Uh, Wait, page 76. Revelation 21 and 22 talks about the eternal state. I'm just going to read about the first, uh, what, five or six verses. I guess I'll do the first seven verses, and then I'm going to hit on a few things before we uh, kind of broaden our scope a little bit. So John says, now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And I just want to point out there are two words for new in the original language. And, you know, Greek is a very precise language. Part of the reason that it's so precise is because, and it's gone through about five different variations, uh, the Greek that was used to to write our New Testament is what's called Koine Greek. Uh, Koine or Kinyi Greek, if you're speaking Greek. Um, The Koine Greek was, the word Koine means common. It was the common street language of the day which I find fascinating that God chose to write his word to us in just the common language of the people. He didn't use classical Greek. Uh, He didn't use, you know, a lot of the uh, philosophical uh, Greek from the earlier ages, 5th century B.C. and so forth. Uh, He wrote to us uh, at a time when the language of the world, the lingua franca, if you will, of the world was the Koine Greek. And yet, though it was the street language of the people, it is very precise. And it's precise because uh, 300 years before Christ, a guy came on the scene named Alexander. Uh, Alexander, of course, had a goal of conquering the world, and part of his plan in conquering the world was to make everybody Greek, culturally, linguistically, uh, socially Greek. Uh, But he had a problem because as he gathered his armies together, there were about six different kinds of Greeks back in that day. Some of them couldn't even understand each other. Uh, They spoke different versions. It would be like you and I speaking to someone from, say, the 15th century English, the old English. And we'd say we're both speaking English, but you wouldn't understand them. So Alexander had to... Uh, pull his army together, and he had to uh, develop a language that was very clear, very precise, and very accurate. And that's what became known uh, to us as the Koine Greek uh, that is written in here. So the reason it's important, and I go into all that as a sidetrack, is because we have two different words for new. Uh, The word for new, neos, is a word that means new in time. In other words, a new creation never existed before. Uh, The other word, of course, is kainos, and kainos is a word that means renovated. In other words, renewed. It's been, it's it's had a makeover, so to speak. And that's the word that we have here. And I think that's important because when we think about a new heaven and a new earth, I think it uh, adds uh, an element maybe of interest, maybe an element of intrigue to realize that Uh, It's not that this earth and the heavens are going to be totally destroyed and made non-existent. It's that they're going to be renovated. They're going to be made new. When 
you and I become believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we're told in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, that if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Uh, this is this kind of new. We are uh, renovated, if you will, and made new. So think of this heaven and this earth, both of which have been tainted by sin. Lucifer, of course, tainted the courts of heaven with his rebellion. And I don't think I have to direct any of you to read the news or see what's going on out there in the world to realize that this world is just totally destroyed by sin. And so there's going to be a renovation. And uh, I like to think, you know, uh, when we talk about the world, sometimes we're talking about the world as the world system under Satan. Love not the world, that's what it means. It doesn't mean don't love the mountains and rivers and trees. Uh, I don't know about you, but I kind of love this world. And I, I find a lot of beauty in it. Uh, I see a lot of uh, wonderful things in nature, for example. But at the same time, if we realize that what we see now, take the most beautiful view, the most beautiful vista that you can imagine, the French Alps, the Swiss Alps, wherever you might wish that you could be and, and see, that probably looks like a junkyard compared to what it was before the fall. What we see at the very best of this world is terribly, terribly uh, tainted and destroyed from what it was originally. So uh, when I think of a new heavens and a new earth, and I think of God renovating it all, not back like it was in the Garden of Eden, better than the Garden of Eden ever was, it just, it just blows my mind and I, I can sit and ponder for hours on that. Uh, also, there was no more sea. Uh, my son doesn't like this because he's a surfer uh, over in Australia, and uh, you know he wants to have uh, some surf. Uh, but sea here refers to salt sea. It doesn't mean there's not going to be any ocean. It means there's not going to be any salt sea. Um, for for whatever value that is, uh, don't feel bad if you still like to surf. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. Just try to picture this in your mind as he describes it. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. We saw the bride earlier uh, in uh, chapter 19, I believe it was, and we're going to see more about her here. <clears throat> I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. We know this language. Uh, a lot of it comes from the New Covenant in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. Verse 4 says, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And this, to me, above and beyond a renewed creation. To think of a world, to think of an existence... How long has it been since you last wept? How long has it been since you were last heavy? Uh, when were you last down, discouraged, or depressed? You know, we usually don't have to think very far whether it was a, a major hurdle in life that we were going through or even some small irritation on a daily basis. Imagine never having any of that. It says that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more sorrow, nor crying. There will be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. 
Verse five, then he who sat on the throne said, behold, I make all things new. John, writing almost 2,000 years ago, is carried in the spirit here into the presence of God and sees he's actually there. He's actually seeing things happen that haven't happened yet. Uh, He's a time traveler, if you will. I don't know, I have some, some strange uh, hopes that I think about. People often uh, ask, you know, will we be able to maybe put in a video and see ancient history playing out? Could I put a, a disc in and, and watch David take down Goliath? And I say, no, I think it's going to be better than that. I think you're going to be able to be standing there on the battlefield and actually watch it happen. Uh, we are no longer going to be uh, slaves of time and bound by time. And so, you know, you think about uh, John just looking on these things and, and hearing the voice of Jesus Christ sitting on the throne, behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, write. I can imagine John standing there with his chin touching the ground, his tongue's hanging out like, you know, I can't believe that I'm actually seeing this. And he has to be reminded, by the way, you're supposed to be taking this down, right? So he's told to write. Right for these things, these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. By the way, who is the overcomer? Who is he that overcomes? John, same author. 1 John 5, verse 4 and 5. Who is he that overcomes but he that believes that Jesus is the Christ? This is that which overcomes the world, even our faith. So this is a promise for you and I. And we're reading about it, trying to picture in our mind what John was actually seeing happen around him. What a promise. He who overcomes shall inherit a few things, right? All things. And I will be his God and he will be my son. Have you ever wondered about this? How many millions, billions, who knows the number of believers from the beginning of history until the end? We're all going to be crowded up there in heaven. There's only one Jesus, right? Uh, Have you ever tried to picture trying to get close to him and you've got all these multitudes ahead of you, all these crowds, and you're at the back of the crowd and you're going like this, hey, here I am, you know, uh, when do I get my chance to, to get close? Uh, this promise to me is a marvelous and a wonderful promise because he is going to be with each one of us in a way that we can't even comprehend. He makes it personal. He makes it individual. God does not look at people as masses of people. God looks at people as individuals. Each and every one is important. If you were the only one who would trust Jesus Christ for your salvation... He still would have gone to the cross and he still would have paid the penalty for the sins of every member of the human human race. How amazing is the grace of God? How infinite, how all-encompassing is the grace of God? And as I mentioned last week, one of the things that's going to break the hearts, and we just sang about it, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. And why will they do that? 
That's not going to be a forced act. That is going to be a voluntary declaration when the evidence that they are shown of the love of God and the grace of God is so absolutely overwhelming that they can do nothing but fall on their knees before the Lord of glory and acknowledge who He is and what He has done. And personally to me, you can talk about all of the various descriptions and pictures of hell, darkness, loneliness, isolation, fire, flame, whatever you want to use, to me nothing conveys the thought of what hell will be like, like knowing that the Savior loved you enough to die on the cross for you and you spit in His face and rejected Him and now you believe, but you believe too late. That to me is what would make hell hell. All right, so we see a new heaven and a new earth and you can go through your notes. I'm not going to question. Somebody have a question? Um, I'm not going to go through a lot of it right now because I want us to get in our mind an idea of what dispensations is all about and what, as we sit here in Camp Verde tonight, in September 29, I think, 2023, and we look forward to this, what is our hope and expectation? I don't know about you, I can only answer for myself, but if I look forward to that, that is great, that is outstanding. But we have just read through 21 chapters of hell what's going to happen on this earth. Do I have to go through all of that? I mean, the Catholics have the idea of purgatory where you go and you basically pay for your own sins. It's crazy because the only purgatory mentioned in Scripture is the one Christ went through. When He had by Himself purged our sins, He was seated at the right hand of the Majesty on high. That's in the first three verses of Hebrews. That's the only purgatory that exists. But the idea, you know, that, that we have to go through all of this and we look at the tribulation and we look at the anguish, the sorrow, the suffering, the misery. Do we have to go through all that? That's why I want to cover what I would like to cover. So here we are. I'm going to give you a quick history lesson. Eternity past... Eternity future, right in the center is the cross. That is the focal point of all of human history. All prophecy in the Old Testament focuses down to one person. And then all prophecy from that one person spreads out to include us all. What an amazing plan. It all centers in Christ, which is why he's called the cornerstone. We can break what we call the Old Testament, which is literally we're saying the Old Covenant, referring to the covenant that was made with Israel. We can break the Old Testament down in half. Uh, we basically have two ages, before and after. Before Abraham. That's where everything changes. 
I would refer to the earlier age, for lack of a better term, as the age of the Gentiles. There were no Jews. Isn't it amazing that God calls Abraham out of Ur of Chaldea and starts a new race? The youngest race on the planet, the Jewish race. So the age of the Gentiles is then followed by the age of the Jews, or we could say the age of the law. All of that leads up to the birth, the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. With the finished work of Christ on the cross, we start an entirely new age. And we oftentimes don't, either don't think or uh, maybe don't dwell on uh, how difficult it must have been for those people in the early church to go through that transition. I'm teaching the book of James at our uh, conference here in uh, Prescott Valley, first uh, of November. And James is our earliest New Testament book. And there is a lot in the book of James, and it is a phenomenal book, but you can tell that it was written very early. James did not have the advantage of Paul's revelations and Paul's insights. And so uh, there are uh, obvious things that he doesn't include because he didn't know them. And we'll, we'll deal with all that in time. With the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, we begin what we refer to as the church age or what Paul calls in Ephesians the dispensation of the grace of God. He uses the word dispensation. What does dispensation come from? Oikonomos, or oikonomia. Oikonomia, if I say it the way it would be pronounced by a true Greek, economia. Remind you of anything? Economia, economy, right. Oikos means a house. Namos means a law. So, an economy, or Paul uses the word dispensation, that's the way we translate it, refers to the law of the household. We have a different household here than what we have here. Completely different household. And the law of the household and the rule of the household is different because revelation is progressive. God deals with the human race the way a father would deal with a child. You don't go out and get them a driver's license, put it in their hands, set them in the truck, and send them off down the road at the age of three. It takes time. And God had to deal with the human race like a father raising a son and bringing them up to the point where we would be ready for the work of Christ and our marvelous church age. After the church age, seven years... There are so many passages that make it clear that it's seven years that it can't even, you can't even contest it. Seven years of tribulation. According to Jesus in Matthew 24, the most awful time that human history ever has or ever will experience. Think of the days of the plague in Europe. Think of the horrors of World War II. Think of the death camps. Think of whatever you want to think of as the worst. 
And if that condition existed throughout the entire world, it still wouldn't be as bad as what's coming that we've studied from chapter 6 on, chapter 6 through chapter 19, tribulation period. The most horrendous, awful, terrifying time, a time that'll be so bad that people will try to die and wish to die and not be able to. I don't know how to figure that all out. A guy jumps from a 20th story building and bounces off the concrete. I don't know what's going to happen, but that's what the scripture tells us. Men will seek death and not be able to find it. It will be so horrible. That is the last seven years of this dispensation. When we speak of the church age, we talk of intercalation. You ever heard intercalation? See one of the benefits of coming here? You learn new words. <laughs> An intercalation means something inserted as the way that the uh, grammar, theological grammars describe it. Something inserted between two existing things as Wednesday and Thursday and we add a new day. If you stick a new day between Wednesday and Thursday, suddenly, unexpectedly, it's what we call an intercalation. At the beginning of the week, you couldn't see it coming. All of a sudden, you're told today's not Thursday after Wednesday. Tomorrow's not Saturday. Tomorrow is come up with some name, some new day. We're going to insert a new day. The church age is an intercalation in history. With the resurrection of Jesus Christ, first Coming prophecy has been fulfilled. Second coming prophecy is yet to come. And one of the reasons that the Jews couldn't understand who Christ was is because they put first coming and second coming prophecies together and they didn't realize there had to be something in between. So where is the victorious? Where is the lion that they were waiting for? No, prophecy said when the Messiah comes, he is going to reign with a rod of iron. So this guy can't be him. They didn't understand the distinction between first and second coming prophecies. We've already looked in Revelation 20 about the kingdom age, a thousand years, six times. It tells us that it's going to be a thousand years long. And we're going to reign and rule with Jesus Christ for a thousand years. And now we've come to Revelation 21 and 22. And we're past the end of human history. We're, we're in eternity future. <clears throat> How does this age end and this one begin? This will be very familiar to some of you, but to some of you it may not. And it's critical for you to know it. And it's what we call the rapture of the church. Now you will hear people say, I run into people all the time and I can hardly withhold my glee when they start telling me this because I know they're about to get shut down. <clears throat> Nobody taught the rapture until John Darby came along and John Darby came up with the idea of the rapture. Well, I hate to inform you, but it was really Jesus Christ came up with it first and then the Apostle Paul expanded on it 
and we have all kinds of information on the rapture of the church. What is the next thing that we know without question is going to happen? I don't know if any of you have heard what's supposed to happen on Thursday, is it? Wednesday? Wednesday the 4th, October 4th, there's supposed to be an emergency broadcast system thing. Mm -hmm. And there's all kinds of rumors flying around about what does it mean, what is it going to do. And if you're curious, I will tell you what I know about it. That's all I know. <laughs> rumors. <laughs> I can't tell you what's going to happen, what's not going to happen. I don't know. Uh, I've read people who say they're going to take their phones and all of their smart devices and they're going to stuff them in a Faraday cage because one of the rumors is that this is going to be a blast that's going to shoot 5G through all of our uh, phones and, and other things and on and on and on. I'm using it as a crazy illustration. I don't know what's going to happen this week. But I can tell you with absolute certainty what is the next big event in God's plan. And that is the rapture of the church. What is it? How does it happen? How does it affect us? That's what I want to spend five passages. If you understand these five passages, and always remember, Scripture is a unit. We break it up into books, yes, but it is all the Word of God from beginning to end. And it all complements itself and each other. Various passages support and complement each other. The old law, again, going back to Alexander, which takes us back to, to Plato, which takes us back to Socrates, but the old law of non-contradiction. Truth cannot contradict itself. Truth must agree with itself. Uh, that's why when people say, well, the Bible contradicts itself, my first response is, show me. Yes. Nine times out of ten, they can't. One time out of ten, they might come up with a couple of passages where they say it contradicts, and then I just have to explain it to them. I had a lady that's been writing to me. How she got my email, I'm not sure, but uh, she's been writing to me, and she says, well, the Bible is contradictory because some passages say that we're saved by grace through faith alone. Other passages say we're saved by faith plus works, and I have over 30 passages that teach that you have to do certain works or you're not going to be saved. This, I was getting this while I'm in India. Uh, so I wrote back to her and I said, look, I'm in India. I'm in the middle of a really busy schedule. Send me five of your passages and I will clarify them for you. I haven't heard from her again. So I don't know what that means. If you can put these five passages together, not just for your own comfort, encouragement, and assurance, but for other people, because you're going to run into people and they're going to say, all oh, that rapture stuff, I don't believe it. Mm -hmm. I've been told by my pastor that John Darby came up with it. No, you want to have answers. And so I want to give you an answer because this, to me, this is one of the most important things that you and I can know in the time that we're living in. So here we go. If you will follow me, and we're going to see how these five passages fit together, starting in John chapter 14. One of the things we need to realize uh, in reading the Gospels, and particularly the Gospel of John, <clears throat> is that John slips language in that if we are not familiar with the culture of the day and the customs of the day, we completely miss the meaning. So, for example, 
No man knows the day or the hour, not even the Son, but only the Father. And we read that and we say, okay, Jesus had no idea what's happening, what the Father's plan is. It helps us a lot when we realize that that's language terminology. Uh, language terminology, marriage terminology. That's marriage language. And once we understand that, all of a sudden, it starts making a lot more sense because when a young man and a young woman were engaged or betrothed, as they called it, they would come together, they would have a ceremony, they would make a pledge to each other. The young man would then say, I am going to prepare a place for you. Here we are in John 14. I'm, I'm kind of undercutting where I'm going, but I'm going to go prepare a place for you. So the bride says, well, when are you going to come and get me? And he says, I don't know. I can't come until the father approves of the place that I'm making for you. So he would go. He would build a house, usually on land that was owned by his father, possibly next to his father's house. When the father felt that he had done, because let's face it, he's a young guy. He's going to get married. He's got this absolutely knockout, gorgeous bride. He can't wait for the, you know, the, the I do's and, you know, to get out of town, right? He'd put up a tent. <laughs> right? Pup tent goes up next day, here I am. No, the Father has to pass approval on it. So when we understand that what Jesus is saying is, I'm here to call a bride. I'm here for an engagement. And then I'm going to go, and now we're in John 14, so if you'll follow me, verse 14, let not your heart be troubled. After all that we've read about the tribulation and after looking around the world, and I don't know about you, but when I look around the world sometimes and I see the stuff that's going on, I just have to shut off. I have to get off the computer and get off the news and just forget about it because it is so depressing. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, Believe also in me. By the way, when we believe in him, we're believing in God. In my father's house are many mansions. Mansions, probably better translated, dwelling places. Trust me, they're going to be bigger than, your place is going to be better than Mar-a-Lago. How's that for an example? Uh, it's going to knock you out. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going to prepare a place for you. Here comes this wedding language. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. Don't worry. No matter how long I'm gone, I'm coming back. I will come again. And here's the phrase I want you to get. Receive you to myself. Let's go back to the wedding for just a minute. In ancient times, in the days of Jesus, when the young man came, he would come with all of his rowdy friends. I love to think about the fact that the first miracle Jesus ever performed was turning water to wine. The reason he turned water into wine was because they ran out of wine. I'm of the opinion that they ran out of wine because Jesus showed up with all the disciples, right? So he turns water to wine. Well, when a wedding takes place, the bridegroom comes with his friend, what we call the best man, and a company of his buddies. Remember what John the Baptist said? Someone is coming after me who's mightier than I, I'm not worthy to unloose, unleash, uh, to unloose his sandals. And what did he call himself? I am the friend of the bridegroom. 
I'm the best man. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. I mean, some of these thoughts are just pinging into my head as I'm talking. It's kind of dangerous sometimes. <laughs> John the Baptist is the greatest of all the prophets, according to Jesus Christ himself. All of the prophets prophesied until John, but he said none was greater than him. The greatest of the prophets, the greatest of all the Old Testament saints, which would put him ahead of Moses, everybody else, David, in the kingdom of heaven, he's going to be less than you. Ponder that for just a minute. You hold a higher position. You hold a greater position because of two words that Paul writes over and over again in Christ. No one before the resurrection of Christ was in Christ. That's something that happens only by the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and the baptism of the Holy Spirit did not happen in the Old Testament. To be placed into union with Jesus Christ, not just as a child of God, not just as a believer, but as what makes us so special, His bride. What did John say? I saw the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. We're going to see John describe it as we go on week after next. Beautiful, fabulous, but sometimes we get so caught up in the 12 gates and the 12 foundation stones and the gates are pearls and my wife loves pearls and imagine that the gates of the city are all pearls. That's where we get the phrase pearly gates, right? We get so caught up in it, we forgot. John is using symbolical language, and I'm not saying it's not going to look like that, but let's not forget he's talking about the bride. He's talking about us. And he's using pictures that stun and amaze us as we think of the beauty. Imagine the walls of the city being transparent gold. Imagine the fact that there's no light needed in the city because the Lamb is the light of the city and that light is going to shine out through the walls of that city and it says the nations will walk in the light of it. Astounding, amazing, but it's wedding terminology. So here's Jesus saying, I will come again uh, and I will receive you to myself. When? The bridegroom with his best friend and all of his buddies came down the street. They're not sneaking up. They're blowing trumpets. They're singing. They're shouting. You can hear them coming a half a mile away. The bride, and we don't realize that this custom of ours for where a young lady has a trousseau or her hope chest or whatever that goes all the way back to biblical times because once that young man left and said I'm coming I can't tell you when but when the father tells me I'm coming she lived in expectation every day he's coming every day she's looking for his coming that's what we're supposed to be doing about the return of Jesus Christ when the bridegroom and his friends came down the street she grabbed up her wedding dress and whatever, who knows, makeup, whatever. She ran out to meet him. He didn't come to the house. She would go running down the street, probably barefoot. Maybe, you know, I don't want to get too descriptive here, but she, here she is running down the street. I mean, he's come, right? 
And they would go to the father's house and there she would prepare herself and the wedding lasted seven days. I've always felt like we are way too cheap on our, and I don't mean money-wise, we are way too cheap on the way that we conduct weddings. Their weddings lasted seven days. Seven days of feasting, seven days of celebrating, seven days of singing, and so on and so forth. It would just be beautiful. <laughs> Nan and I got married in a meadow up under the Mogollon Rim up by Christopher Creek. How great it could have been if we could have lasted, you know, just had everybody hang around for seven days. We stayed in a cabin, actually. It was built in the 1800s for our wedding night, uh, which was the nicest place we stayed for the next three months because we went to Colorado on horseback and we traveled around in the San Juan Mountains and lived in a tent and got rained on and snowed on and everything else. And someone told her, if you can hang with him through that, you guys will make it. I guess next year is our 50th, so I guess, I guess we made it. I guess you did okay then. Yeah, she's pretty tough. If I go and prepare a place, I will come again and receive you. We go up, he comes down, and we meet. Just hold on to that idea. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians. I've been taking too many rabbit trails. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I'm sure you're all familiar with this passage. 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning in verse 13. I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. This is why I'm doing this tonight, because Paul says this is something we need to know. I do not want you to be ignorant concerning those who have fallen asleep. How many people here have loved ones who have died? All of us. Uh, how many of us have people that just were taken from us way, way, way too soon? Paul says, I don't want you to sorrow as those that have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, that's it. Simple faith, childlike faith in the person and the work of Christ. Even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. All those who we know that are believers who have died, when he comes, they come with him. Right? Going to be a great reunion in the sky. Verse 15, for this we say to you, by the word of the Lord. Paul wants us to know this is God's word that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Why does he use the term sleep? Because when you sleep, you wake up, right? The body sleeps in the grave. Uh, don't believe in the teaching of soul sleep because the scripture plainly teaches that when we die, instantly we are face to face with the Lord. Soul and spirit goes to be with the Lord. Body goes into the ground. The body is going to wake up. That's important because of something that's coming here. If Jesus brings with him those who sleep in Jesus, and we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who are asleep, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Wait a minute, I thought he just said they're coming with him. He did. Now he's saying that they're coming up from the grave. They are. How does this work? Soul and spirit coming down, resurrected body coming up. It's not just going to be a reunion with our loved one. It's going to be a reunion of the soul and the spirit with a resurrected body. Your resurrected body, I don't know if this will encourage or discourage you, <laughs> is going to be the one you have now. But trust me, it'll be better. No more weight problems. 
No more need for glasses. No more bad hearing for those of us that are getting long in years. None of that. The body rises, soul and spirit comes down. There's a reunion of the total person. We who are alive and remain, we caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we will always be with the Lord. From that moment forward, there will never be a separation again. What did Jesus say? I will receive you to myself. Language in Scripture is very important. Sometimes just failure to understand a single word can set us off track. He didn't say, I'm coming back to earth. I'm going to come and I'm going to receive you. The bridegroom cometh and the bride does what? Leaves everything else behind and we go to meet him. Instantaneous resurrection body. All right? Just look at the next chapter. So we know, John chapter 14, he's coming, he's going to receive us. 1 Thessalonians 4 explains how it all happens. When does it happen? Can we prove that the rapture takes place before the tribulation? Yeah, we can, because Paul writes it. Chapter 5, verse 1. Concerning the times and seasons, this is biblical language for dispensations. Concerning the times and seasons, you have no need that I should write to you because you yourselves know perfectly. How amazing is this? Before Jesus was resurrected, his disciples said, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And what was his answer? It is not for you to know the times and the seasons. There was something that they couldn't know that Paul now says we should know perfectly. We should have full understanding of. You yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord, that is Old Testament code language for the tribulation period, the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. Have you ever heard Christians say to you, well, you know, the Lord's coming as a thief in the night. You know what my answer always is? Not for me, he's not. Why would I say that? Because of what Paul says here, look. You yourselves know perfectly the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. For when they say, unbelievers, peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes on them as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Hint, hint, tribulation period. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so this day will overtake you as a thief. Not going to happen. Why? You are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do. Wait a minute. He just used the word sleep in chapter 4 for death. And now he's saying don't sleep. Does that mean we're supposed to do everything we can to try not to die? Here again, two different words used for death. The word that's used in 1 Thessalonians 4 is koimaomai, and it means to lay down and take rest. It's a very positive word. Here the word is kathudo. Kathudo means don't be a numbskull. Don't be an idiot. Don't be ignorant. Don't be unconscious and unaware of what's going on. Let us not sleep as others do, he says. But let us watch and be sober. What are we watching for? Ta-da! Coming of the bridegroom. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day that is, believers, 
Be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Get ready for this. For God did not appoint us to wrath, hint, hint, Old Testament term used about 20 some times for the tribulation period, the day of wrath. God did not appoint us for wrath. What did he appoint us for? He appointed us to obtain salvation, deliverance through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. Here's another sacred cow that we're going to demolish. If you're ready when Jesus comes, you get to go. And if you're not ready, you stay behind and you go through the tribulation. Have you ever heard that one? What's Paul say about it? I like, I I don't know about you, but I kind of take Paul's word over other people's. Verse 10, who died for us so that whether we're awake or asleep, in other words, whether we are scripturally instructed, well instructed and intelligent, or whether we're like one of those numbskulls wandering around not even knowing what's going on, There are a lot of believers like that, but you know what? Here's the grace of God. Whether we are awake or asleep, we will all live together with him. Does anyone get left behind of the family of God when Christ comes? No. What what if I'm sinning when he comes? Do I get left behind? No. Why? He already paid for the sin. Law of double jeopardy, God is never going to, Hold sin to account twice. Next book Paul wrote, 2 Thessalonians. I'm going to try to hurry this because I know I've kind of meandered here. If you go through chapter 1 of 2 Thessalonians, Paul goes into describing what he was just talking about in 1 Thessalonians 5, the day of the Lord, and he talks about judgment, and he talks about in verse 5 of chapter 1, manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you suffer, since it's a righteous thing that God would repay with tribulation those who are troubling you, and give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not God and the, uh, do not know God, and those who do not obey the gospel. I mean, this is all about horrible, horrible judgment. What's he talking about right here? Still going on about the day of the Lord. Now, if you're a believer in the first century and you're reading this, maybe even today, you start thinking, am I going to go through that? Is that going to affect me? Chapter 2. Now, brethren, Paul says... What a gracious man. You know, a lot of people say they don't like Paul. I've heard people say Paul was a woman hater. No one has done more in all of history to elevate and honor women like the Apostle Paul. Nobody. Uh, Again, it's all misunderstanding of various passages. Here he is graciously comforting Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, I will receive you to myself. The dead in Christ will rise first. You see the commonality in the language? We ask you, verse 2, not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by... uh, Do not be shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter as if from us. 
if some prophet comes to you, and I could name a bunch of them, and you probably know some of their names, and they tell you we're going through the tribulation. There are preachers right now that are saying we're in the tribulation. Are you kidding me? Do you feel like you're going through a worse time than has ever happened in history? I don't think so. <clears throat> he says, I don't care if someone speaks by some spirit, some prophet comes to you, or even if you get a letter and the letter claims to be from me and my team as if the day of Christ had come. And some of your translations will say day of the Lord. There are two variants. I won't go into all the details, but in the Greek manuscript tradition, there are basically two lines. One says day of Christ. Day of Christ means this. The other says day of the Lord means this. In either case, if it's come, where are you? You're in the tribulation, right? If someone sends you a letter and says, hey, by the way, we're in the tribulation. Paul says, don't be troubled. Don't let this upset you. Don't let this disturb you. Verse 3, let no one deceive you by any means. For that day, right there, tribulation, that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. We're talking here about Antichrist. Okay? There's a whole lot here. I can't obviously go into all of it, but basically he's saying that time is not going to come until Antichrist is revealed. Will you and I know who he is? No. Have you heard this? They're going to start putting microchips in us. And that microchip is the mark of the beast. But before that, it was your social security number was the mark of the beast. And before that, it was your birth certificate is the mark of the beast. And it goes on and on and on and on. No, he's not here. He's not going to be here while you and I are here. That day can't come until he is revealed. Verse 4, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or worship so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself as if he is God. In other words, this guy is going to claim to be God in the flesh. This is what Daniel calls and Jesus referred to as the abomination of desolation. When you see the abomination of desolation, flee. Are you and I going to have to flee? No, we're not going to be here. Who's going to have to flee? Jews in Jerusalem. They're going to have to get out. Verse 5, do you not remember when I was still with you? I told you these things. I feel like this sometimes. You know, I teach and teach and teach and beat my brains out. And then someone raises their hand and says, by the way, do we have to work to go to heaven? You not remember when I was with you, I told you these things. Verse 6, now you know. Now you know, he says. What is restraining? Take note. Whatever is keeping that Antichrist from coming is a what? Now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work only. He who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Who is the restrainer? It's the Holy Spirit. Who is the what? The church. It's the church. The church is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. When the church goes up, the Holy Spirit goes up. Doesn't mean he's not going to be working during the tribulation period, but he will not be working in the sense that he is now. Be totally different. It'll actually go back to Old Testament conditions. Okay? So he concludes... 
then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. When did we see that? Revelation 19. When does it happen? Second coming of Christ at the end of the tribulation period. Are you guys seeing how the passages hold together? I hope so. Last one. Revelation chapter 4. You know, when I first became a believer, I had no one to teach me. How did you learn? I read. I found an old Bible that had the cover torn off, and I hid it because I didn't want my brothers to see me reading the Bible and laugh at me, so I I would hide it. And when no one was around and I had a lot of spare time because I had to go out and herd sheep and horses, and I'd sit out there while I was keeping watch over the flocks, and I would read the Bible. And some things would just confuse me so much. And when I finally came under pastors that started putting it all together, it's like absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. But I will say this, in those days... There was one thing that I loved more than anything else, to read the passages about the return of Christ. I didn't understand the distinction here. I just knew one thing, he's coming back. And that was enough for me. First three chapters of Revelation, we've seen the church, the word church occurs 19 times in the first three chapters, does not occur between chapter six and 19, which is all tribulation passage that should tell us something if he mentions the church 19 times and then suddenly he doesn't mention the church at all through the whole tribulation period where's the church revelation 4 after these things i looked and behold a door standing open in heaven Uh, you'll notice the word standing is in italics that means that it's not there in the original language a door open in heaven Uh, Literally, the perfect tense is used here, and it means a door that was opened at some point in the past and remains open at the present time. When was the door open? It was open when that veil ripped from top to bottom, and God said, the way into my presence is free and clear, and everyone is welcome. The first voice I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, come up here, and I will show you things that must take place after this. Literally, that should be translated after these things. You remember the outline that we were given in chapter 1, verse 19? Write the things that you have seen, that's chapter 1, and the things which are, that's chapter 2 and 3, and the things that will happen after these things. Well, now we're after these things. Verse 2, immediately I was in the Spirit. Behold, a throne set in heaven, one sat on the throne, and he who sat was like jasper and sardius stone appearance. There was a rainbow around the throne appearance like an emerald. He goes on and on just with all of this magnificent uh, visual effect. And then we see 24 elders. And the 24 elders have crowns and you can read all that yourself. But what I want to get to is in As we move now over into chapter 5, he's still in heaven. He's still drinking in and taking in everything that's happening. And you notice in chapter 5, verse 8, 
When he had taken the scroll, the four living elders and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. You are going to see your prayers right there. You're going to know that not a single one of them was ignored. Your prayers to God are like incense. So the prayers of the saints, verse 9, and they, these are the 24 elders along with the angels, are singing a new song, saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and open the seals for you were slain and you have redeemed somebody to God by your blood. What does it say? Us. You have redeemed us. Who is the us? It's the church. It's the only one it can be. How do we know that? You have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made somebody kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. What is the only group of people in all of human history who are royal priests? church age believers Peter tells us this in 1 Peter chapter 2 everyone who believes in Jesus Christ between the coming of the Holy Spirit and the rapture of the church is immediately made a member of the royal family and a member of an eternal priesthood didn't happen in the Old Testament not going to happen in the tribulation not going to happen in the kingdom that's a designation that belongs only to us. Why is that important? Because if John is called up to heaven in chapter 4 and verse 1, and in heaven he sees an innumerable company of people who are thanking God for making them kings and priests, what does that tell us? The rapture of the church has taken place, and that's why from chapter 6 to chapter 19, we never read the word church. What does all of that mean? Titus chapter 2, verse 13. Keep looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I hope that what we've covered tonight will challenge you every single day, not just to expect, it could be today, but to pray that it will be today. Do you know what the last prayer in the Bible is? Do you know who prays the last prayer in the Bible? Turn to the end of Revelation. We might as well just... See, I told you we'd finish tonight. Here we are. Revelation twenty-two sixteen. 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you, to you these things in the churches. Now we're talking to the church again. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and the morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let him who hears say, come. Let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. Verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming quickly. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Who's praying the prayer? The church. Have you ever thought 
that if the book of Revelation and the last book of all the books of the Bible ends with the church praying that prayer, have you ever thought that maybe he's not going to come until the church cries out for him to come? Let me ask you a question. How long has it been since you prayed that he would come? I have to tell you, I pray it every day. Every day. Because as I look into the future, and yeah, we all have hopes, dreams, plans, there are good things out there ahead that we all would love to experience, but I have to tell you the trajectory of history, and particularly the trajectory of our country right now, doesn't give me a lot of hope. There are things on our horizon that I do not want you to have to go through and I do not want my children and my grandchildren to have to go through. Things in our world could get really bad really quick. You know what that motivates me to do? Come Lord Jesus. I would encourage you to pray that prayer. And I'm going to end with that prayer tonight. So thanks for your patience. I hope this hasn't been uh, a waste of time or uh, distraction from what we've been working on, but uh, I hope maybe it's challenged you and encouraged you a little bit. So let's close in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we all unite right now in this room as we gather together around your word and in the power and the presence, uh, the control of God the Holy Spirit we do pray that the Lord Jesus will come quickly. Uh, we realize that as he uh, waits and as we wait for him, there is work to be done. There are wonderful things to do, enjoy and experience. Uh, there are times with friends and loved ones. But Father, uh, we know that nothing we can experience on this earth can compare to what we will experience in his presence. So, Father, I do pray that uh, you will teach us to look for that blessed hope and to pray that that blessed hope become a reality to us. May the Lord Jesus come soon, we pray in his precious name. Amen. 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 Good. Yeah. Gene, could you go over those five verses right quick? I don't mean, I just mean tell You want me to teach them again, right? <laughs> <laughs> I have to. Oh, okay, okay. Jo John 14, if you just want to jot them down. I got that one. John 14, uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, okay. 1 Thessalonians 5, okay. um, Revelation, Second Thessalonians 2. 2, 2, right, and then Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1. Okay. Right. Can I ask you a question? Right, questions, yeah. Can questions. Uh, is there any, what's the deal with, we were talking about the body going up and meeting with the, with cremation, like what's, some people have thought cremation is not good. Any, any thoughts on that? Yeah, man. Any scripture? I, I feel really bad for all of those great believers back there in history that got burned at the stake. Kidding me. Yeah. yeah. It, it doesn't. It doesn't. God is going to be able to bring, you know, like say you're a uh, sailor, you die at sea, they dump you over the side. Sharks and fish are taking little bits and pieces of you here and there. God has yeah, God has no problem bringing that back together. Question. Um, 
where do believers from dispensations other than the church age fit into this picture of the New Jerusalem as the bride of Christ? That's a very good question, and I'm going to answer it for you after next week. Um, when you and, and see, it's beautiful because uh, when John talks about the New Jerusalem, he talks about the gates, and the gates have the name. There are twelve gates. They have the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There are twelve foundation stones. They are the names of the twelve apostles. So what it tells us is that God brings the whole family basically together. We're unique. I mean, there will be distinctions among us. The idea that everybody is going to be the same in heaven is a fallacy. There are going to be different ranks, different duties, different responsibilities, different groups. I mean, it talks about the nations bringing their glory into. So you've got believing nations out there. You've got Israel being ruled over by King David, who's resurrected. I talked about that last week. How cool is that going to be? I'm going to go sit down and have coffee with him and ask him what it was like the day he took Goliath on. You know, it's, 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 it's going to be amazing. But no, sir. Well, no, maybe sir. so. Yeah, maybe so. I think I missed something there. You said everyone's going to be saints between two points. Was that between the rapture and the church age? Everybody was going to be... Priests? Can yeah. Priest? The church age believers, people who believe here, people who are Paul's term in Christ, okay. <clears throat> we are believer priests. Every believer is a priest. Every believer is a king. We're a king priest. Or if you ladies prefer, queens. Imagine being royalty in a heavenly kingdom forever. That's just, it blows my mind. You know? Just... I can't even imagine. And David will want to have coffee with you because he'll have questions of what it's like to be involved by the Spirit. Well, actually, we'll be higher than him. Yeah. yeah. So imagine Elijah standing at your door waiting for the opportunity. Can I come in? You bet, Elijah. Come on in. It's going to be amazing. All right. Any other questions? Yes. From last week, why or what is the purpose of Satan being loosed after the millennium? After the millennium, Satan is loosed to prove the depravity of the human sin nature. After a thousand years of perfect peace, perfect environment, perfect government, perfect everything, people are, and, and seeing Christ. In, in the flesh, resurrected, ruling over the earth, and they're still going to rebel against him. It, it just... But they don't need Satan to do that, right? I mean, it's, They what? They don't need Satan. They're already doing it because of the evilness of their own hearts. Yeah, but they're all... They're, they're keeping it down because Christ rules with a rod of iron. You step out of line, mm -hmm. there's, there's going to be no... You know, it's not going to be like our laws. Two-tier legal system... Uh, if you're of a certain group, you know, there's no penalty. If you're of another group, you're guilty until proven innocent. None of that. It's going to be the law is the law. The penalty is the penalty. And he is going to reign with a rod of iron. He's going to be extremely gracious. But without a leader, they're not going to revolt until 
Satan shows up and they go, oh, wow, he must be really powerful. Here he is. I don't know if you've run into many Satanists, but Satanists actually believe that Satan is going to be ruling in hell. They believe that's his kingdom, and they believe that they're going to be reigning with him, you know? No. Ezekiel says when Satan gets tossed into the lake of fire, everybody's going to say, are you as weak as we are? You couldn't even save yourself? So... All right, folks, I will not be here next week. John's going to be up. Thank you, John, for filling in for me. Have a great week. We will be in Pennsylvania next week. Pray for us. We've got a, it's our biggest conference of the year uh, at Abundant Life Church, so keep us in prayer, and then we'll be back the week after. Okay? Thank you. Thank you.